Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. I just wonder if you can tell me why now why was the, this the moment that you wanted to write this or publish this I think it was the opportunity the opportunity had actually arisen I first tried to uh, pitch a book in 2016 uh, there was some interest at the time but it went nowhere and uh, I've tried on and off in the intervening years uh, I've pitched we've pitched ideas we'd both pitched an idea at one point didn't we uh, with Stella if you remember oh yeah yeah and it just came back no interest uh uh, nothing, and then I was actually approached by the pub, by this publisher back in uh, September last year, by say, who said this is an interesting story. Do you want to write about it? So it was an opportunity which I I uh, grabbed at the time. Didn't realise what I was taking on. Tell me more. In what way? Well, I've been I've been writing pieces for the press, yeah. and I'm used to writing 600 to 800 words is normal. So it's like a middle distance runner, runs okay. 600, 800 words. This was uh, 55,000, which is a marathon by, by comparison. And I set off with great gusto, thinking this was easy. And then after about 10,000 words, I realised I was only 20% of the way there. And this was, this was rather more work than I thought. And it, it dried out my creativity. I got about halfway through, and I had to stop. And I just stared at screens. I just, I just lost that creativity. That's interesting. What got you going again? I think if you, it, it's, it's a wide and varied book with lots of different aspects to it. And a lot of these are issues which I've been talking about over the, over the years. So, for example, the chapter on autogynophilia, which is sexology, I've written some pieces on that, so I could draw on that. The work on the Council of Europe was some journalism, which I did on that at the time, so I could draw on that. So I was drawing on quite a lot of what I've done before and then trying to knit it all together into a coherent piece. But starting from scratch was very difficult, and the bits I wrote from scratch were really hard. Yeah. Oh, and the other thing was, the bit about the TUC, which I wrote, it was just bizarre what happened but I kept myself going through through all that when I was it felt like 15 to 1 in a room at one time uh, but the way I kept my cool and kept going was just to make notes and now this is happening now this is happening now this is happening this is happening and I was writing all those notes and partly to inform my officials back at the union what's yeah. going on but it was a great resource when I came to write this book. I did wonder if you'd had kept a diary because yeah. it is it's very complex all yeah. those those moves but yeah. um, just I mean tell me just very briefly about that so let's let's go back to the big be- well, the beginning you talk about in your book about having this sense as a very young child forgive me if I phrase this wrongly but feeling that you wanted to be a girl or you wanted to dress as, as a girl um, and then it wasn't until much later you marry Stephanie, you have your family, and then it was. I think are you in your forties when 40s, you yes. when you um, it, it moves to a different stage? Would you mind just telling me very briefly the story of that? I do. I can't remember a time when I didn't struggle with these things. And yes, when I was a small child, I'd describe it as wanting to turn into a girl. That's how that's how I'd describe it because it's the only language I had. Uh, I don't think it's too uncommon, but over the years it was something I managed to uh, to deal with. And you, you put to one side, there's lots of things that we struggle with in life as, as we get through. But it was around that time, around 2010, when I became aware that other people were transitioning and other people were doing this. 
and it wasn't it wasn't uh, celebrities. It wasn't uh, you know people like Abel Ashley, who was just on a completely different uh, level to me. These were people who I knew had normal jobs in normal places because social media allowed you to interact with them and talk to them. And then the feeling that other people were doing this, it just the feelings of desperation and jealousy perhaps almost that mm. you can, why can't I do this? Mm. So that came in and then the realisation that if they can do it then so can I. So almost like the, the blocks that you put in just to keep this down just just mm. let go. And I've heard you describe this, in fact it's probably in the book as well, of, of, of being a, suffering a severe mental health crisis so that there seemed no alternative. Would that be right? Yeah, and actually I underplayed it in the book because I don't like to, uh, you know, I'm a teacher, I've been trained in this, you know, uh, talking up mental health uh, issues can, can, uh, can cause other people to struggle even more. So I've talked it down in the book, but I really was in a bad way. It was the fir- that first evening service of, uh, in church of January 2012, I think it was. So we have an evening service, and you get into church, and you, and you, break, in, cause it's into, you break into small groups by saying, what are your hopes and fears of 2012? And I thought, I just can't cope with this. I don't, you know, I'm tw- you know I was, at the time, I was just so, uh, you know, I couldn't square that circle. I, would, I knew I desperately wanted to transition, and I had to transition. That's, that was the way I thought. But at the same point, I knew what the impact on everybody else would be so it was like not being able to square square a circle at all and I I just apologized to the people I was in the small group with and uh, said I'm sorry I've got to go uh, ran out the church and then ran home zigzagging across the road in my eyes shut and I've been a more careful driver since because you're never sure what the pedestrians on the <laughs> yes. on the pavement will do yeah. but that's that's the level that's yeah. that's the level I was at and Stephanie what did you feel was going on at this moment did you did you have have any idea what was going on for debbie well january 2012 we would have spoken about it by then because we debbie first said something to me uh, it was around april 2011 uh, so i didn't really understand what was going on but i could see that debbie's mental health was deteriorating quite fast yeah and so you, you go ahead, you go through the long process, there's lots of counselling, lots of talking about it, and then you then you, you make the decision, you have the surgery. And and if I've understood correctly, things sort of carry on and then you get involved very much in your alongside your teaching work, you get very involved in the union work. Um and one of the things that I'm I'm not quite sure of I don't know if it would be fair to describe it as a crisis, but this sense of, of shifting understanding. What was the trigger for that? Where did when did you start sort of rethinking what what have I done and what does I, this mean? I think until I had the surgery in February twenty sixteen, the focus was all on that. It was that 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 was the focus in this. Uh, this this was the last stage of the transition. I've done this. I've done this. I've done this. I've done this. And when I do that, everything will be sorted. That that was the uh, and everything will be right. Uh, also, there was also the fear that uh, you know. My GP could say he's not going to prescribe this stuff for me anymore. And until you've had surgery, you, you you're reliant on that. But once you've had the surgery, there's basically so I was that that was crucial. And having surgery, you then got ten weeks. I was I was off work for ten weeks afterwards, uh, doing 
well, pottering around the house and uh, quite enjoyed that time. But it's time, you had far more time to think and reflect mm. then. Because up until the surgery, I had been working full time as head of physics, science coordinator in school. I was really busy in school. Then I had the surgery and it just sort of, it sort of stopped and I had time to think. So that, that, uh, that was one side. I had more time, I had more time to think more widely. It was almost, right, that's the surgery, what now? And I had time to consider that. And also it was, this was the first meeting I went to and it was, it was as a trade union representative. I was, I was, delegated from the TUC committee to attend that meeting and speak at that meeting, where I first came across different views because the whole uh, debate does take place in uh, in echo chambers. People, you know, and, and you feel safe within your little group where everybody thinks the same thing and uh, everybody agrees with each other. Uh, you know, there's, there's a period of safety there. Whereas suddenly I was there speaking to a meeting and, if I'm honest, everybody who was platformed gave a similar message. Mm. But there were some people in the audience who uh, who didn't. And uh, and social media got their... Well, sorry. One was uh, Julia Long, who uh, was quite forthright in her views, who stood up in the meeting. And the way in which the discomfort spread through that room, there was perhaps, I don't know, 150 people in that room. Uh, men, members of parliament, many leading figures in this debate were in that room. Julia Long stands up and the discomfort, you could feel it percolating throughout the room. But I, I, I listened to what she had to say and I thought she's got a point. And then it was somebody else uh, then tweeted at me and you look at this and thinking, and it was just that thinking, well, what's all this about? So it was just getting a conversation with people and actually then reading a bit bit wider because the person who tweeted actually shared some pieces with me and said, have a read of this and see mm-hmm. what you think. And it was the first time, really, I'd read things which were outside the uh, area of work which I was supposed to read. And the sort of the the, the hook on which the the sort of clash of beliefs and then then your falling out with the unions is the is the central belief that they would say that you are now a woman and you say no, I'm not. Yeah. Tell me a bit more about that. Uh, it's a concept of gender identity that we all have a gender identity, and that gender identity determines whether we're men or women so that that's crucial and that that's that's why i fell out because i said i said no we don't uh it took me a while to get there you know my my my, this revelation didn't come down all all at once and actually during as i was writing the book my my uh you know my thinking developed further as you write in the book as, as it would do but the concept of gender identity was one but what was crucial was this at the time, there was this political push for self-identification, so people could essentially choose their legal sex, the sex in which the law uh, treats them, according to this gender identity. That was the idea. And why I started speaking out was, I realised that as the law then was, people could change their legal sex. I thought that was pretty remarkable, actually, that the law allowed that. And uh, and how it has gone through, how it how it had gone through, and I thought, wow, this is uh, this is, you know, and and I could see how it was open to abuse, but you would hope there's enough safeguards in pre- in place to uh, in prevent that, and then it seemed that people wanted to take those safeguards away. So two things were ob- immediately obvious to me. One is that it will be abused, and secondly, when people realise the safeguards aren't there, it will just destroy the whole confidence in the system. And so I started campaigning, basically, 
looking after my own rights. Mm. And it was it was only later when you, when you start campaigning alongside feminist campaigners and alongside people who are concerned about children, you then pick, you, you then uh, really understand the breadth of what's going on. So tell tell me about the t-shirt moment. That seems to be quite a <laughs> crucial step. Oh, the t-shirt, the t-shirt, yeah. Uh, it was a laugh, basically. I, I thought, I can do this. So uh, this T-shirt said, trans women are men, get over it. Stonewall had put this T-shirt out that trans, trans women are women, get over it. And I disagreed I disagreed with it fundamentally. It was a political statement. And the message of Stonewall's shirt was, it was making a claim, trans women are women, but then a message to the rest of society was, you've got to get over this. So I, th- I, I thought, it's wrong. So I changed, the, I changed the slogan to what I thought was right, trans women are men. But then I added the get over it as well, and that's often not understood by people, because the get over it was that that's an inward challenge, uh, because I'd gotten over that. And once I'd gotten over it, I, I, I was just not bothered by this. You know, people say, we know you're really a man, Debbie. And I said, well, yeah, sure, what, what, what's, what's the problem, you know? So I, I thought that was liberating with that shirt. So I, I had one made up. Uh, I, was in a, I was in a group with a number of other transsexuals at the time, and I think I, I think I got seven made in the end. It was a local print shop that did it, and uh, I went in with the uh, with the JPEG. Uh, I said, "Do you mind printing this?" So she said, "Sure, sure, seventeen pounds ninety nine a shirt or whatever it was." I said, "It's a bit controversial." She said, "You should see some of the things that people bring in here." So I think I had seven, and six went off in the post, and I, I kept the seventh. And I wore it in an event in London. I was quite chuffed with it. Everybody thought it was funny. I had a picture taken, and I tweeted. I tweeted the picture out, but one of my one of my another transsexual had got the T-shirt and had uh, had had tweeted the picture, and that tweet had got uh, reported for hate speech, and the account had been blocked, and I thought, heck, I don't want that, so I took I took the tweet down because if you're going to you know I, I I could do without my account being blocked, so I uh, I took the tweet down and. Didn't think much more of it, and then it's sort of a. But people always take copies of these things, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it then got thrown at me as, uh, and it was it, it was the central point in that in that you know this is what this is what Debbie thinks, and this is why Debbie's thoughts are hateful, and this that and the other. And you were basically thrown out, weren't you, of 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 a role in a. Yeah, I think with the TUC. Uh, I was I was I'd been elected to a position, so I was democratically accountable. But it wasn't a particularly uh, the, it wasn't a particularly competitive position I was in. Uh, there was twenty four places on this committee, and and you you know on these committees usually there'd be seventeen places and five vacancies, and you'd be uh, desperate looking for somebody to call. Yeah. That's the way it was. So that, so I was elected here, but when people started getting upset with me, they could I was due for a re-election the following summer. They could have just uh, said right, we'll find some candidates to put up against you. Uh, which they did in the end, but instead they decided to go down this uh, disciplinary process, which was just totally bizarre. And so um, my question is, why why do you think it is so difficult to have, dare I say, rational, calm conversations about this issue? Why is it so inflammatory? I think we're discussing issues about what it, what what actually determines something so core and central to human society, which is the distinction between men and women. People know what they think. They can see, you know, you look at me, we, we all know men and women when we see them. People worry that somehow the law is going to change that. So on one side, the law is going to change so that uh, 
the distinction between men and women is according to how individuals feel about themselves. And we all feel that that's not right. You, you, you're changing the way I think there. And then there's another group who are desperate to get the concept of chromosomes, uh, you know, gonads, whatever else, you know, enshrined in law on that side. But uh, I think where both are coming from is the idea that uh, everybody's a blank slate. And if we can actually get the law to write on this, write this down, then we can control people and we control society. And everybody worries that another group's going to get in there and do it. I don't think that's the case. I think well, I think everybody's worrying over nothing there. That human beings are not blank slates. That's what you said before. Whether you uh, whether you're a scientist like me who uh, you know who thinks evolution explains the process of how we got here, our psychologies have uh, have evolved in the same way that our bodies have evolved. And one thing that has evolved in us is the ability to tell the difference between men and women. And that's not going to change. And as a Christian, I'd look at uh, verses such as, well, I'd look at chapters such as Ephesians chapter one, where you know our, you know, we were ordained before the uh, before the dawn of time, and I think if we get back to that, that we're not we're not blank slates. I think a lot of this, I think there'll be a big sigh of relief. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, everybody is terrified that somebody else is going to control yeah. their thoughts. So fear and control, you think. Yeah. Because you have a very interesting thing where you describe it as almost like a cult, you know, mm. of anybody who dares it is. to yeah. um, speak yeah. against it is, is yeah. sort of hurled into yeah. outer darkness. Yeah. I think those are my words, not yeah. yours, but yeah. it's extraordinarily yeah. emotive, isn't it? But, that, but human beings have created cults since the... Uh, yes. Since yes. since who knows when it's what we do we get yes. into our we get into our comfortable group where we're all comfortable and anybody who breaks the comfort we chuck out all of which is magnified by social media isn't it um, I mean that gave you opportunities but also there are there are real downsides yeah. so just um, tell me I think for some people they won't be very familiar with um, autogynophilia can you just tell me a little bit about what you've kind of what your understanding is of, of where you've ended up and why. Right, it's just an explanation for, one explanation for male transsexualism. I don't think there is a single cause of transsexualism. This is, this is one of the problems of gender identity. This gender identity was invented and this is the single cause. And, it, and people use gender identity to link together, for example, middle-aged men who transition in midlife and teenage girls who are struggling with the concept of becoming women. Those are two... Totally, totally different aspects. But gender identity is pull it all together. I think that's unhelpful. So I think gender identity is an unhelpful concept. Even this single diagnosis of gender dysphoria is uh, is unhelpful because we say that middle-aged men have gender dysphoria and teenage girls have gender dysphoria. So it's the same condition, and it's not. I think in the book I said something like it would be better if if clinicians noted an insatiable need to present as the opposite sex and then asked the question, why would anybody want to do such a thing? And there I think we might get somewhere. And one of the, uh, one of the uh, possible reasons of why people want to do such a thing is this concept of autogynophilia. And it, it, literally it means uh, an attraction to one's self as a woman. So male sexuality is, is strong, and the male sex drive is strong, and in the vast majority of cases, you know, 98%, I think, of men are heterosexual, some, something like that, anyway. So, uh, and, and, it's, and it tends to be focused on the female body, and there's good reasons for this, you know, if, if it wasn't, we wouldn't 
you know, we, our species would have died out yonks ago. So there's good reasons for this. But men can be attracted to uh, any number of women. Men can be attracted to all sorts of female body. Uh, men can be attracted to inanimate objects. You know, you know, uh, and, you know we, we know these things. And what autogynophilia is, is when that or part of that source of sexual focus is our own body. And uh, so the focus is your own body, but being heterosexual, you've got this, and I use the word, I think, in the book, a lamentably male body. And the drive is, is to change that body in order to uh, match up with the image which you're trying to, uh, you know, trying to project onto that body. I guess, you know, an analogy that readers might understand is how, you know, men can be attracted, men can perhaps encourage their partners to wear clothing which uh, man finds attractive. You know, that that's normal. Men will encourage, yeah, encourage their partners to look attractive because they're attracted to that. Uh, and in, in a normal heterosexual relationship, that, that happens. Uh, the, men, the man might be saying, how about wearing this? And the woman might say, not, not, not likely, not doing that. Whereas in autogynophilia, when the attraction is yourself, you can do something about you do what you like, mm-hmm. and you do something about it, you do what you like, and there's there's nothing in that circuit to actually say, hang on, you know, it's too cold and too uncomfortable, so there's nothing there. So suddenly, I you know, as a physicist, I use that imagery of short circuitry, mm-hmm. and it can it just it, it just has these bizarre results. Uh, so that, that's what that's what autogam- and that's why it drives it drives this urge to transition. And that's that's what you would say is, is what happened in your case. If I've, under, if I've yeah. understood you right, yeah, yes. Uh, forgive me if this is an ignorant question, but could could any of that have been that need have been met by just dressing as a woman without the transition? Or? I think I, I say in the book, you, there's different types. You know, the Ray Blanchard who who, uh, who uh, researched this, you know. 30 years ago it's not new this this none of this is new knowledge it's just it's just not talked about he talks about different types of autogynophilia there is transvestic autogynophilia where it's the clothing there's an, an anatomic autogynophilia which is the body and i guess it's that men in itself are not generally attracted to clothing they're attracted to bodies right. and it's the body which is crucial yeah, yeah. Well, thank you that that helps me understand um now I've watched your um, the video you made for LLF, and I wondered. Um, there's quite a lot of questions I got about that, but how did that come about? How did you end up doing that? Uh, the bishops, I think, as a body, were approached to suggest suitable people, and uh, so uh, Bishop Anne uh, suggested suggested that we might be people who would be useful to talk to um, and then uh, we initially had a conversation I think with loads of other people and some of those were then asked to be filmed mm. so. and I thought it was a, a beautiful little film I just wondered if you if you're glad you did that if you would make a different decision if you were asked today I just wonder how it feels <laughs> for you two it's quite a big thing. It was a, it was a huge thing we'd already done I, I'd I'd refused to go on any kind of media for quite a long time, partly because I just wanted to keep things separate for for the the children. Then uh, we were on a was Channel Four, was it a Channel Four documentary? Just briefly, and that kind of you know worked. But it, it meant that when we were approached for the LLF, we kind of thought, well, fine. In fact, you know, if you can be on Channel Four, the LLF should be safer. Yes. Uh, it's 
when we were filmed, I wasn't expecting to move jobs. So, uh, and then the the actual launch of the LLF was delayed because of COVID. So, I ended up being involved in the launch. Well, not involved, but you know, there when it was launched in one diocese, and then moving diocese, and being there when it was launched in the second diocese. And I found it interesting the difference because. In the first diocese, I was surrounded by friends and yes. people who knew both of us. In the second diocese, nobody knew me. <laughs> and, and that was uh, more difficult. Mm. It, uh, you know, it, it was fine. Nothing went wrong. Mm. But there was always that, that, that caution of what people might see, what people might think. Uh, the fact that sometimes people recognise me from yes. the video rather than knowing me and then yes. seeing the video yes. Yes. was you know, interesting. Yeah. And generally, people's responses have people been warm and affirming, or have they? Because I think in, in your afterword in the book, you talk about some of the unhelpful things people have said to you as well over the years. I think from the LLF, it's no one has come back, certainly to me, I don't think to either no. of us, uh, negatively about that. I've heard from other people that sometimes they've watched the video and then someone says, Oh, by the way, you know, you do recognise this person. And they've almost gone back and rethought. I'm not necessarily saying that was a rethought positively or negatively, but actually suddenly thinking, actually, I know that person. It's not someone on a screen. It's someone who I've related to in these situations. Uh, So I'm aware that people from a wide range of backgrounds have seen it. I'm sure that some of them don't always agree, but on a personal level and on a work level, there's not been any negative feedback from it. Overall, a positive decision. In real life, it's been very positive. Good. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.